Amen. Hey, as you're grabbing your seat or if you're at home watching online, uh, grab your Bible, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, we're going to pick up where we left off just a few weeks ago. I'm going to read the text here and then we are going to dive into a subject that comes out of the text. Uh, Last Sunday and this Sunday are kind of uh, two unique Sundays in it all, and uh, we're keying in on a subject and working that out. And I just pray that God does a work here, and uh, God had helped me make it through this time on the subject we're about to delve into. Sometimes my gift of empathy or my curse of empathy um, can uh, bless first service for their endurance in the subject with me. Second Samuel. Chapter 12, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, you'll learn very soon here. Let me begin verse 13. Uh, This is after uh, David and Bathsheba, and uh, Nathan confronts David for his sin. And verse 13 begins this way. David then replied and said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. By the way, how cool is that? You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. Yeah, that's the reality. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and the child became sick, verse 16. David, therefore, sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to David, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. David arose from the earth, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. So like the end of Job chapter one. He then went to his own house and when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. And then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and you wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and you ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast now? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him but he will not return to me. The death of a young child, the death of an infant, the passing of an unborn. There are few things in life that pull such hurt and heartache. 
Karen and I have not experienced any of those. Uh, but many of you have. And I and we can only imagine your hurt and the heartache of your loss. Uh, nearly some 20 years ago, the first funeral I ever conducted as a pastor was of a newborn child. The hurt was unbearable. I mean, the questions that were in the air were just palatable. It was questions in the air of why? And where is God in this? And then the unspeakable hurt for that dear young couple. I will never forget it. In our small group, we have a couple that 32 years ago next month lost their firstborn son at 13 days. Another in our small group. She lost her first grandchild, a son, from heart condition issues right around three months. I'll add just another person in our small group four years ago next week, this coming week, lost his wife the heartache, it's real. And the question is, is is there hope in the heartache? 2 Samuel 12, we read that and David states with the loss of this newborn son, he, he states, but I will go to him. I think a viable question to ask is, is, is that the hopeful words of a grieving father that really have divine truth to it? Or are they just wishful words that really we have no idea about? I want to delve into that subject today. Lord willing, I want to bring some hope in the heartache. I want for you to know this right up front. For those of you who have experienced such a loss, today is in no way about trying to remove your heartache. In no way is this about helping you to get past it. Life is too valuable to get past it. Instead, I want to try and, oh God, help me, uh, because this isn't necessarily my strength, but to help you, us pull together some things to see the hope of Scripture laid out. Today's more like a theological class. I'm more of a preacher than I am a teacher. And in this, God help me to pull these together. Um, Because I think as 
Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Today, I want to help inform so that we can grieve as those who have hope. Got the picture? That's what we're trying to do today. So with that, I'm gonna follow through the kind of the similar format as I did last Sunday. Um, uh, well, I think it's a kind of a format that you can use for most any kind of subjects, especially last wife with the subject of multiple wives, and then this wife, this Sunday, the, the death of a child, uh, I think can help move us along in thinking through. So what is the subject? Let's start there, the subject. I've pretty much already laid it out, but just for clarity, the subject is, is our deceased unborn or born children, whether by miscarriage, whether by abortion, or whether by death of an infant or young child, are they with the Lord? It's a great question to ask. And I believe scripture points us to yes. And I want to take you there. So what does God have to say? Here we go, we're stepping into theology class this morning. Welcome to Bible college this morning here. And I wanna start with the first of three things. Number one, we have to understand a biblical view of the value of human life. The value of human life. Genesis 1.1, God creates all things. It says he creates the heavens and the earth. Um, uh, the Lord's fingerprints are all over creation. Go to Mars, go to Pluto, go to infinite, whatever the statement is, and beyond. Uh, uh, our kids are grown up now. I can't remember all those. Uh, and, and so with that, wherever you go, our God's fingerprints are all over it. I believe we live in an infinite sized universe that matches our infinite sized God. And wherever we would go, God's fingerprints are all over it. And Colossians 1.16 add this, for by him, making reference to Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, for by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Uh, the ontological activity of the Trinity, uh, Jesus Christ is the creator, one, of all things out of the Trinity. And they are all through him and they are for him. And yet uh, the question is, so what about human life? Well, Genesis 1 verse 27 and following answers that. Verse 27, chapter 1 tells us that the Lord uh, creates mankind, male and female. We come to learn uh, chapter two, Adam and Eve in the image of God. Oh friend, that is huge. There is nothing else noted in scripture, in all of scripture that designates anything created in the image of God other than human life. I know your kitty is wonderful. We have two of them. I know that your puppy is like your best friend at times. And I understand that the mountains are glorious. But I'm going to tell you, none of those were created in the image of God. There is something unique about humanity. We do not worship this earth. We worship the God who created everything. And the God who created not only put his fingerprint on us, but the God who created us, created us in his image. And if you would go to Psalm 139, you just can't talk about that subject and the value of life without going to Psalm 139. Let me read verses 13 through 17. It says, for you, God, formed my inward parts. Listen to this. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
How does that baby develop? Yeah, God's all over it from conception. And I would argue before. What am I talking about? Uh, Verse 14, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. We don't pat ourselves and go, we are awesome. We look to God and go, yeah, wonderful are your works. The end of verse 14. My soul knows it very well. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Uh, I don't have the time today, but I would argue actually that from uh, before conception, God already knew you and me. In fact, oh, let's see it. Uh, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And how do we respond to that? Verse 17, oh, how precious to me are your thoughts, oh God. How vast are the sum of them. I'm going to say it this way. In words matter, and I'm going to say the words in this way. Biblically, there is a life at conception. I would even argue there's not just any life. There is a God-fingerprinted, God-created, God-made, God-intended, God-who-loves creation at conception. And before, let's say, before physical conception, the Lord had already had his creative fingerprints all over that human being. Human life, friends, is no freak accident. I don't care what the world says. We are not here by freak accident. We are here by God's divine hand. And by the way, all of that carries into the, uh, into the whole conversations and views of abortion. All of that carries into the conversations and the views of gender as it's being talked about today. Psalm 139, I just don't hear it being brought in, even by Christians, into that whole conversation. There is a God-created, God-fingerprinted, God-formed life at conception. And I will add here, Nancy Pierce, Piercy, in her book, Love Thy Body, answering hard questions about life and sexuality, she says this, Virtually no professional bioethicist denies that life begins at conception. That's interesting. But in secular personhood theory, by the way, big theory going on today, being embraced for so many things that are being talked about today. But in secular personhood theory, to be human is no longer equivalent to being a person. Human life has been reduced to raw material with no intrinsic purpose or dignity, subject to whatever purposes we choose to then impose. This is because the body is reduced to a mindless machine, just a disposable piece of matter. The body is separated from the person. You see, and that then means, at least in many's minds, that the body is just a body and we can define what it is, who it is, what gender it is by what we want it to be, by separating those out. She goes on, a Christian concept of personhood depends not on what I can do, but on who I am, that I am created in the image of God, and that God has called me into existence and continues to know and love me. Human beings do not need to earn the right to be treated as creatures of great value. Our dignity is intrinsic, rooted in the fact that God made us 
knows us and loves us. The Bible is clear that God's love extends to all human beings, including those not yet born. Hashtag Psalm 139. The value of human life. I'll just add along with that. We look at scripture and we see that God protected the Hebrew babies from being killed by Pharaoh. We see God protected Moses as a baby. Oh, and then a baby Jesus, a God in human, protected from being killed by Herod. Oh, by the way, and let us note, all of those referenced right there were taking place in times of history where we're talking about a massively low view of human life. In fact, sacrificing a child was okay. And God calls Israel his children. And then the many metaphors used by God for loving his children the way a mother loves her children. Jesus welcomes the children to himself. And then Luke 1, 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Verse 44 says, for joy. I'm telling you, friends, God's word screams the value of life. And if you've had a miscarriage, if you've had an abortion, if you've lost an infant or a young child, while these truths do not remove your loss and hurt, they inform. And they inform you and they inform us that every son, every daughter Every is intricately made by God, known by God, created in the image of God, and I will add, I believe, will sovereignly be with the Lord for eternity. God has something to say about the value of life. You have to start there. Let's move from there into God has something to say about the condition of life. Okay, now we're getting into the theological depths. Hang with me here, okay? I'll pull, hopefully, Lord willing, pull it all together. So if I lose you partway through, just hang with. Okay, we're going to go deep here. We're going to go deep in scripture, deep in theology, because we don't have a verse that says there is an age of accountability. So we have to grasp all that we can know of scripture. The secret things, Deuteronomy 29, 29, belong to the Lord. The things revealed belong to us. So let's dig into this and let's work this out. I'm gonna try and do this kind of with you and in front of you. And know this, there are kind of a couple views on this aspect of the condition of the human life. Like, let's go, what is the spiritual condition of the newly conceived child, of the child in the womb, of the young child? Is there an age of accountability is kind of the common term of it. What's the spiritual condition of that child? One viewpoint says that the spiritual condition of the unborn child or the young child is what would be fully innocent. In other words, uh, there's no sin, there's no guilt, there's no condemnation, but fully innocent. And I'll say, some really good men and women who love the Lord and love his word hold that viewpoint. That, that is not my viewpoint. Uh, I'm actually gonna argue, I think there's something more awesome than that uh, in it. Uh, instead of fully innocent, I actually think that the answer to the, the thing is, is that it's fully graced. Okay? Uh, again, work with me here. There is a life at conception. 
And the question that follows from that is, what's the spiritual condition of that life before God in that condition? Is it guilty of personal sin? I would actually say no. They haven't conducted, carried out a personal sin. However, is there guilt as a result of being a human descendant of Adam? I would actually argue yes, that there is. Allow me to work that. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. Adam and Eve were our representatives. You know, we can get in that whole thing where it's like, Adam, you loser. You know, Eve, come on, girl. You know, we, we could go there with it, but the fact of the matter is you and I would have done the same. They were our representatives. When they sinned, we sinned. Out of their sin, out of Adam's sin, as scripture even calls it, out of Adam's sin, all have sinned. The curse of sin, the fall, there is a sin nature that then is, we could say, is imputed to all. Another way of saying that is inherited by all. And uh, add Psalm 51.5, David says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is saying that the condition in and from the womb was that of iniquity. I think he's referencing the fall, the transferred curse of sin onto all humans, and being that I believe at conception, Scripture points us to, a newly formed life is a life and therefore transferred, carried over. Charles Ryrie adds to this uh, Psalm 51.5, he says, it is not that the acts of giving birth or conceiving are in themselves sinful. That's not what David is talking about. But that from the moment of conception, a person possesses a sinful nature. That's where I'm at theologically. Add Psalm 58.3, it says, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. So as descendants of Adam's, every human being, oh, wait, but Jesus Christ, oh, virgin conception, sets him completely apart from every other human. Oh, by the way, Christmas is coming up. This is one of the reasons why that's a huge deal. Because it was not through normal conception that sin was passed. And, and as descendants of Adam, every human being has been, that has, every human being has conceived and birthed as a guilty descendant of Adam. The sin of Adam is ingrained on the heart, infused in the very nature, I would say, on day one of a life. Well, Doug, where's the hope then, man? Turn to Romans 5.12. Um, turning there, we think of Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Again, I believe if life is at conception, then all of life has the imputed, the inherited condition of, of a sin nature. All have par 
participated in Adam and Eve's sin. We come to Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all because all sinned. Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that man. Uh, again, it, it's, it's passed on. Uh, and again, so where's the hope, Doug? Where's the hope, Doug? Like, get to the hope, Doug. Hey, I'm going there now. But why the bad news? Why the understanding of the inherited, imputed nature of sin? Because if we don't understand that, we really don't understand what God has done. And we really don't, when we really don't dig in and grab a hold of the whole thing, even having to talk about the sad, ugly part of it all, we don't end up with the full hope that God has for us. Okay? So now, the hope. Everybody ready for the hope? Yeah. Okay, sweet. Where is the hope? Well, I would answer it this way. On one hand, oh, I'm getting intense. On one hand, God redeems the infant and the unborn in the exact same way that he redeems you and me by grace. On the other hand, God must by necessity save them in a unique way because we would say, save by grace through faith. How can an unborn child have exercised faith? Well, let's work it. God has something to say about the hope of eternal life. Romans 10. You can go there. Romans 10. Ephesians 2, just coming to mind as you're turning there. We are saved not by works, but by what? By the way, if the child is innocent, could it not potentially be argued that that's their works? We're, we're, we're somewhere in that category. I would argue that no, actually, even for the unborn, it's, it's by grace. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing, that is hearing the good news about Christ. But a child cannot, uh, uh, an unborn or a young child cannot hear, cannot process in that way. Uh, Dr. Ken Gardoski, a friend of ours from seminary uh, back in the day, says this about, about uh, Romans 10, 17. Paul is only describing the usual method which the Lord uses in calling people to himself. Paul is, as Calvin says, not laying down an invariable rule for which no other method can be substituted. Attempting to bind God to his rule of salvation through personal faith is like giving a law to God. That is dictating to God how he must or must not save individuals. As Calvin put it, God sanctifies whom he pleases, and I might add, as he pleases, whether by first personal faith or other words. Continue building it. Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. I'm, I'm, I'm arguing for the case, I don't think an infant or a young child has the ability to exercise faith as those who have the ability to exercise faith. We come to Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, of mankind, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is made plain to them 
because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Let me say it this way. Friend, you sitting in the room and hearing what you're hearing today means you are without excuse. Because as we're going through this, you're hearing the gospel. And you are without excuse. But an infant and a child, look, the, the text tells us in Romans 1 that who, who suppress the truth. I would argue an infant, a new unborn, can't suppress the truth. What can be known about God is made plain to them. They can't process that. It has been clearly perceived. Can't happen. So for the ones who are that, it is, they are without excuse. Let me add Romans 2, verses 15 and 16. It tells us that the law is about showing our inability condition. Why is all that stuff in the Old Testament about all those laws? Answer, to show us we can't work our way to heaven. Romans 15, 16, it tells us our conscience bears witness and our conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse us. There's an understanding ability to be able to be there, to be without excuse. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says no one is righteous. That's the condition. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Again, actions that an unborn or a young child can't do. Pull all these together. Here's, here's, my, here's my calculation. Psalm 51, 5 plus Psalm 58, 3 plus Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, plus Romans 1, what is made plain and clear makes us without excuse. Romans 2, a conscience that bears witness. Romans 3, all have turned aside, that's an action. All are without excuse. All of those of which an unborn or an infant child does not have the capability to do. So Doug, what do you then do with that? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Deuteronomy 139, listen. Listen to this as I read the context. Moses is recounting the rebellion of the Israelites against the Lord at Kadesh Barnea. In this accounting of it, he's giving a judgment. He's giving a judgment for their unbelief of him. And the Lord in it promises, hear me on this, promises that the adults, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, would die in the wilderness And Moses, speaking for the Lord here, says, Deuteronomy 1, verse 39, you write it down, says this. As for your little ones, who you said would become prey, and your children, the word there is young children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, shall go in there, and to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. I think this is the bringing together example of God uniquely applying grace. Here, grace to the little ones who had, as the text says, no knowledge of good or evil. And friends, all of that brings me back to 2 Samuel chapter 12 with David, And the words that he says that he will go to his deceased son, that he will see his son. 
When I take all of these and I pull back, I think David's words were informed words of hope. Not the, oh, I hope, golly gee wish upon a star. I think they are grounded theological words of truth that provide hope. The subject, what God has to say, third, we must sit then in who God is. We hear and we take to heart the hope that God's word provides us in this. And yet the heartache remains. And ultimately, questions remain. And I want for you to know, if I could say this, via the Psalms, your questions and your unsolved heartache is okay. And it's there that we come to understanding and being reminded of who our God is. And loved one, whatever mystery we have in this world, when we come and bring our questions and our concerns and our thoughts and our confusion before our God, in a nanosecond, they will all be gone because we will behold him fully and we will not be able to stand there and go, you loser, you were unfair, you were unkind. Job 1, the end of the chapter, his grown children all die. He tears his robe, he shaves his head, acts of mourning, he falls on the ground, and the text tells us, like the text tells us of David, that he worships God. I would say a worship lament, aching before God. And Job declares, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I, shall I return. The Lord gave, uh, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the text tells us, and in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. You read through the Psalms and you find the psalmist times, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, don't you see what's happening? Hey, it's okay to have those questions. It's even to have those struggles. But follow the rest of the psalm because usually it's laid before the Lord and the psalmist generally comes out at the end going, oh, but you are God and I am not. So what do we then think and do? There is hope in the heartache, but it doesn't remove the heartache. 
Don't try to get past it. Grieve. Lament. Ache. But we do so as people who have hope in the heartache. If you're unborn or born child that passed, we're here. I believe that your son, your daughter, would want you to know I'm good. Dad? I'm good. Mom? I'm good. In fact, it's awesome. Don't ache for me. Fact is, I ache for you. You live in a war zone. And I just can't even fathom right now. Mom, dad, please come to know Christ. Mom, dad, lean into the Lord. I'm telling you, I know more than you on this one. Mom, dad, thanks for grieving for me. But please don't get bitter, God. He's got this. I've seen him. Mom, dad, brother, sister, grandma, grandpa, when the time comes, I'm going to show you around. Lean into the Lord. Dave Harvey, the executive director of the Great Commission Collective, his adult daughter, his youngest, just died. Last week at the funeral, he read this quote. I leave it with you. 
from Oz Guinness in his book, God in the Dark. <sighs> Suffering is the most acute trial that faith can face. And the questions it raises are the sharpest, the most insistent, and the most damaging that faith will meet. Can faith bear the pain and still trust God? Suspending judgment and resting in the knowledge that God is there, that God is good, and God knows best. Or will pain be so great that only meaning will make it endurable? But if the Christian's faith is to be itself and let God be God at such times, it must suspend judgment and say, Father, I do not understand you but I trust you. Lord, um, this is a subject that is uh, heavy and hard, and particularly for those who have lost a child. Oh, how I wish I could just wave a wand. Over their heartache. Make it go away. I, I ask God that you would be near and dear to them. And the hurt and the confusion and the loss, and the wondering. I pray that they might hold fast to you and that they might trust you. And even in the days when it all seems just quite unfair, I pray that they would lean into you and God, I pray you would cover them. with you. Lord, this earth is not our home. Help us to live as though it is not. Father, if there is anyone in this room who does not know you as their Savior, has never come to that point of understanding their sin condition, and in need of receiving the grace of Christ. God, I pray this morning they would get it resolved because we're concerned for them. For those of us who know Christ as our Savior, may it be an embedded reality of hope that in the heartache and the heartaches of this life, that we continue with eyes on you. In your name we pray.